Hello and welcome to The Virtue Podcast, where we unpack all things health and wellness, the good, the bad, and the downright disordered. If you are new here, welcome. My name is Shona Virtue. I'm an ex-gymnast, yoga teacher, PT, and I'm currently finishing up a psychology degree. The first portion of my career, I would say, was very much physically related. And now as I get older, I take so much more joy from understanding and exploring psychological concepts because, well, in the coaching portion of my career, which is obviously ongoing, I've seen just how powerful our psychology is in dictating our physiological outcomes too. Hence the reason for going back to university and also hence the reason for this this podcast. This podcast really takes a biopsychosocial lens. So you'll rarely find me just talking about the physical or just talking about the psychological. Instead, I tried to make sure that we're examining that complex but, you know, beautiful brilliant interplay and interdependency between the biological and psychological on our health outcomes. All of that said, <laughs> I don't know why I chose to intro like this, but today we're actually unpacking a very psychologically heavy podcast, but I guarantee that if you do the cognitive work to understand this topic and the things that we discussed today, you will see changes to your physical health as well. And I'm going to bring it all back, bring it all back together. I also think you'll see changes in your relationships too, which you know we do know dictate health outcomes to physical health outcomes, not just mental health outcomes. So today we're discussing five cognitive biases that may be harming your health outcomes. A little roadmap. We're going to go over the key definitions and brief history of cognitive biases. Then I'll discuss five of the key cognitive biases that I see impact people's health and health endeavors and that I have seen over the course of, well, nearly two decades of being a coach. Finally, I'll leave you with some practical tips for kind of dismantling these biases so that you can improve a number of health outcomes from better bodies to better partnerships. Lots of food for thought today. I hope you guys are hungry. Let's get ready to eat. Cognitive biases are systematic patterns of deviation from norm or rationality in judgment where inferences, I would say, about other people or situations may be drawn in an illogical fashion. These biases are often the result of the brain's attempt to essentially simplify information processing. You could call them rules of thumb that help us to make sense of the world and reach decisions with relative speed. So the positives of a cognitive bias are that they are in a way, in a way an attempt to think efficiently. However, the cons are that they often cloud our ability to see the bigger picture, which in time gets us into trouble. Of course, cognitive biases have been around for a very long time, and it's hard to pinpoint exactly when they were first studied. There's some evidence that they've been studied for like hundreds of years. However, I think famously they were first identified and studied by the psychologists Amos uh, Versky, yeah, Amos Versky and Daniel Kahneman. Again, I apologize if I say these names incorrectly. And this was back in the 1970s, and obviously these things have been continuously repeatedly studied over time. Now, their work really showed how people make decisions that deviate from standard norms of rationality. And they discovered that these biases affect everyday decisions and thinking 
often leading to errors in judgment, which can have like really big impacts, not just like in the individual context, but in broader contexts, like systemic contexts, policymaking contexts, like there's a lot to be understood about these. And we'll go through some of that when I bring up some of the research that's really fun. Well, I only bring up one study today, so don't worry. <laughs> it doesn't get too, too thick, too dense. Now today, the list I provide is not exhaustive. Okay, there are so many of these biases. Sometimes they overlap a little in names. I'm always like, mm, aren't they the same thing? But I would really encourage looking at them. And if you're ever trying to get out of a scroll hole, I find just reading about these can be really fun and somewhat humbling at times. Now, the more that we understand about our automaticity of thought, right? The more we understand how we can jump to conclusions, the more we can catch any errors in our processing. And because my background is in health and fitness, you know that I have chosen these specific cognitive biases because I've seen them play out time and time again in my clients, the broader fitness community, even in myself. And they're detrimental to your ultimate goals, regardless of whether that is general health or something more specific like fat loss or sports specific, for example. You ready? Let's begin. Number one, anchoring bias. This is the tendency to very heavily rely on the first piece of information offered, right? And that's known as the anchor. And this first piece of information that's offered is often like our go-to for making decisions. For example, carbohydrates make you fat. Don't eat carbs after 4 p.m. Don't eat carbs before bed. Lifting weights makes you bulky. Right. As a longtime fitness professional, I really can't tell you how long and how hard it's been to eradicate these sorts of myths that get established. And it has a lot to do with this anchoring bias. Now, this often depends on the generation in which it was founded in. For example, the whole notion of lifting weights makes you bulky was huge in that Tracy Anderson era, who was really just a byproduct of the heroin chic era. Right which is all about having very, very straight down arms, maybe with a little bit of definition, but not too much, along with big thigh gaps and concave abs. I also think that this came off the back of the supermodel era too. And this was very much a time when we didn't have much autonomy over who we chose to idolize. Like if you think about it now, we have social media, which gives everyone the potential for a voice. And it also gives everyone the potential for a choice. You get to choose who you give your attention to. That means a bigger body or uh, an otherwise previously hidden from magazine covers black or brown person with something inspiring to share who resonates with more people can have their own voice, can have their own platform. Prior to this, I don't know if you agree, but this is how I feel. We just kind of took what was given in terms of who we should be idolizing because often they were put on the cover of magazines or they were put on TV. And this wasn't really dictated by us necessarily. It was dictated in a more bureaucratic fashion by board members deciding on who or who was not to be presented in that manner. Now, <laughs> this obviously had very damaging effects on our body image and our underlying belief systems about many things in life. Anyway, we have heavily digressed, haven't we? So angering bias, let me come back to the point. Again, just to repeat, it's the tendency to rely very heavily on the first piece of information offered, known as the anchor when making decisions. And there are several reasons that this bias gets in the way specifically of our health outcomes. So let's take carbs makes you fat, for example does a couple of things. It demonizes a macronutrient that's not just important for everyone, but we know is specifically important for healthy female bodies. Of course, 
There's always going to be clinical circumstances whereby certain carbs are favored over others for certain people. But for the most part, no one should be completely eliminating them. The other problem we see in the research, not just in practice, mind you, is the demonizing of food groups, which we know leads to disordered eating patterns. And those are much harder to unpack over time. For anyone who has suffered with an eating disorder or disordered eating patterns, you'll know how much that pattern gets reinforced within your mind and you start making choices that it gets to the point where you can't even see that you're making that choice. And that's really essentially what a cognitive bias is. It's so fast, it happens so quickly that we don't even realize that we're doing it. Now, the second area that this bias impacts your health outcomes is that it prevents you from questioning further. Now, arguably all cognitive biases do this in a way, but it prevents you from trying to answer why. Why do we think carbs make us fat, right? Now, it takes a little bit of effort, cognitive effort to do so. Okay, like I said, all cognitive biases take cognitive effort to unravel. But if you don't try to understand the mechanisms behind these, then something really, really, really important happens. A, you never uncover the truth or at least the nuanced perspective because it's hard to get one single truth in science. But B, this leaves you feeling really, really, really powerless. And you give your power to the people in this next bias, <laughs> the next one that I'm about to bring up, which can lead you further and further and further from the agency to make empowered decisions for your health and for your life. We have to ask whenever we hear something that feels black and white, we have to ask what is the evidence for and against this situation. Let's move on to the next one and you'll understand more about how this next one interacts with this first one, anchoring bias. Number two, the halo effect. So this bias occurs when our overall impression of a person influences how we feel and think about their character. So essentially, you know, our evaluation of one aspect of that person or thing even influences our evaluations of like all other aspects about that person. I probably don't need to go into too much detail here. You know, a great example is... <laughs> basically trusting hot people to be our coaches, right? We somehow come to the conclusion that their hotness, <laughs> their attractiveness is evidence for their intelligence or their efficacy and often don't question beyond what they're saying and just trust it. And this has been demonstrated in research as well. Now I've put links to a 2021 study that essentially investigated the halo effect and how it relates to the perception of trustworthiness based on aesthetic appearance, examining what's known as its generalizability and stability across cultures and during disruptive events like the COVID-19 pandemic. So for lols, let's look at the key aspects of this study. We'll just break it down a little bit. As I said, it's open access. It's in the show notes. If you want to read the whole thing, please, please, please go ahead and do so. But I'll just kind of highlight key aspects. So the study aimed to understand the halo effect and understand if the halo effect is universally applicable or if it varies across different cultures. This is important, right? Because primarily research focused on Western adult participants and this study wanted to include Asian and Caucasian participants, which really helped to enhance the cultural diversity of these findings. So we're trying to find out, is it, is it a cultural phenomenon? Like, is it just maybe white people that have the halo effect bias? Or does this happen across just humans in general? And so we have like Asians and Caucasians in this study. 
Okay, so a little side note for anyone that's like getting into research, just make sure when you look at the participants, take a moment to go, okay, is this all just like uni students, white uni students, or are they including like information about their ethnicity, age differences, like how generalizable is this cohort of people that they're researching to someone of my background or someone of a totally different background across the other side of the world in a different age bracket. And that, that refers to generalizability. That's that word. Okay, number two, effect of the pandemic, right? So this study was also examining how a significant global event like the COVID-19 pandemic might actually influence the halo effect. Really, this aspect is crucial for understanding if and how, you know, big societal disruptions affect social perceptions. Little spoiler alert, they do. So when our fear is heightened, which is our general alertness, that halo effect is even greater. And I want you to take a pause for a moment and think about when you are feeling very desperate for an answer on social media, when you're feeling at your wits end about your fat loss journey or your weight training journey or anything you might feel a little bit vulnerable about, imagine what that then means for the halo effect for you when you're observing or listening to other people. Just take a moment to think about that. Or maybe a few moments, maybe the next time you're scrolling, just think, oh, this person said this thing and I feel like I really want to buy this skinny tea <laughs> because this hot girl's buying it. Anyway, I, <laughs> it's an example that's a forefront to my mind. I know there are many more examples than that. So I please, please don't take offense to me suggesting that you would ever do that, but it's just an example. All right, methodology. So we should go over what they did. So the study involved 380 participants. It's like an okay size. It's pretty good. 145 Asians, 235 Caucasians. These participants were asked to rate the aesthetic appearance. So beauty, fair look, and perceived trustworthiness of various human faces that differed in age, gender, and ethnicity. What did they find? There is an influence of age, right? So the results indicated the age affects the halo effect. This is not that profound really I don't think but maybe I have uh, another bias there <laughs> hindsight bias um, and basically this suggests that perceptions of trustworthiness based on appearance might vary depending on whether the face belongs to a child or an adult I mean yeah I think nothing too profound to take away from there because I think obviously it gets stronger the closer you feel in age to someone than just a child but uh, maybe not actually maybe I don't know tell me what you think do you think that you would expect to see no difference in age, like a trustworthy child versus a non-trustworthy child. Interesting. Okay, so interestingly, there was no gender or ethnicity bias. So the halo effect was not significantly influenced by the gender or ethnicity of the faces, indicating a sort of level of uniformity in how aesthetic perception impacts perceived trustworthiness across these variables. I found that to be quite interesting. I thought there would be a little bit of an ethnicity bias. Finally, as I already mentioned... The study also found that external events like the pandemic could alter the strength of the halo effect. And I think that that's very, very important to remember, as I said already. Now, everything's in the show notes, as always. So to kind of summarize on this, we see the power of the halo effect in the ability for celebrities, as I said, to sell us skinny teas or supplements or all kinds of programs, you know, even in attractive quote-unquote attractive doctors who are able to sell us into things like personalized nutrition by sticking a glucose monitor on the back of your arm. More on that in another episode. I'm 
still mad about that one, but I'm just waiting for my emotions to subside so that I can provide you with an educational and rational podcast on arguments against it. (laughs) I'll, I'll present you with neutral arguments, I hope so that you can make up your own mind. But yeah, that one, that one's still making me a little bit, a little bit angry. All right, moving on to number three, action bias. This is the tendency to favor action over inaction, often in situations where action is not necessary or is not the best course of action. (laughs) Sometimes the best course is inaction. Right? It reflects a sort of preference for doing something rather than nothing, driven by a discomfort of standing still or waiting. Now, a common example I see in practice is when clients want to do more, but more is not necessarily better. Like If you're following one of my programs or a program before you race to add more, particularly if you know you're susceptible to this bias, like I guess a more quote unquote trivial example of this bias would be like pushing the button on the lift a few extra times when you're in a hurry in the hopes that it'll make the lift go faster, right? When you're running late, you just, it's like impossible to just stand there and be like, well, push the lift once. Like it's obviously coming. The lights come on. There's no need to push it again, but there's just something inside you that makes you need to push it again. So this is a really good example of that, of that action bias, right? Doing more is not necessarily getting you there faster or better. Now, arguably pushing the lift button again doesn't really harm anyone. It's not going to bring any problems. However, when it comes to this on a bigger scale or in relation to your fitness, sometimes we can try to add more, which actually eventually derails us. So for anyone that feels as though they have trouble with that patience, or trouble with consistency in their programming because they always try to add more and then eventually they add too much and they fall off the, I hate calling it the wagon, but let's just say you fall out of your routine or you create something that's unsustainable or you just completely burn out. Try to remember this bias. Try to instead check in with the fundamentals first. Check that you're hitting those, right? Sleep, consistent exercise, enough protein, a calorie surplus or deficit depending on the goal, of course, right? I know this bias doesn't seem as profound as some of the others, but let me tell you, this is one of the reasons I see people drop off their programming or their health practices because that action bias will often lead to some kind of just exhaustion, essentially. Action isn't always the right, isn't always the answer, okay? Hashtag do less, okay? God, makes me feel sound really old. I don't think anyone says that anymore. All right, number four, the empathy gap. So this bias refers to the tendency to underestimate the influence or strength of feelings in either oneself or others, particularly when emotional states differ from the current state. So for example, when calm, it's pretty hard to imagine (laughs) realistically, honestly, how we would act under stress. Like we think we know, but often we're making that decision from a calm state. We're having a conversation with our girlfriend saying, oh, I would never do that. Oh my God, I would never, I would never. And then the the situation happens and you're in there and you're like, I think I would do that. (laughs) Now, this concept involves two key states, cold and warm. So a cold state, when someone is in a cold state, we're just, we're not really experiencing any strong emotions. We're calm. We're calm in our decision-making and it's not influenced by intense feelings like hunger, anger, sexual desire, fear. And in this state, it's challenging for us to accurately predict or understand our own behavior or the behavior of others that might be in a warm state, right? For example, when you're calm, it might be hard to understand why someone would react aggressively out of anger or why... (laughs) 
You might think it's totally appropriate to hang out with your ex, right? As though nothing is going to happen. Ignoring the fact that you have an active anxious avoidant attraction that, you know, in almost all circumstances leads to having sex again. I am definitely not speaking from experience here. I am definitely only referring to other poor anxious avoidant souls who are stuck in this. <laughs> sex with your ex is a really good example of this because it's like you may be able to in that calm state think that you're completely fine and it's not going to happen again and then it just you're just in the same room and that sexual desire creeps up and there's familiarity and there's rapport and you don't have to deal with awkwardness because you already know each other and what each other's like oh there it goes you did it again again not speaking from experience okay moving on the warm state let's describe the warm state right when someone is experiencing strong emotions essentially is the warm state Right. So our decision making and perceptions are heavily influenced by these emotions. Now, in this state, it really becomes difficult for us to recall or comprehend <laughs> how we might want to act when we're in a calm or cold state. Right. When we're extremely hungry, for example, we might find it really hard to understand <laughs> why we previously decided to stick to a calorie deficit, why we decided to start a diet. When you are absolutely in the depths of some kind of craving you it's hard to fathom why you ever thought it was a good idea to do that and most of the time biology overrides and next next minute we're kind of like knee deep in the cookie jar hopefully not hopefully not because that would represent some kind of disordered <laughs> pattern of eating that we'd want to unravel but essentially the empathy gap can have really significant implications on our health something i always talk about is the fact that we overestimate our abilities often because we make assumptions about ourselves before we've paid the cost of that decision. So you might like to think that you can embark on that regimented Atkins diet at work if you just bring your work to lunch every day and forget that by 4 p.m., you know, your hunger levels are going to start to increase and that cookie jar at the office looks incredibly appealing. Or, you know, maybe even just like this notion of like, I'm going to food prep every Sunday, every Wednesday, and yep, that's totally doable. And then we forget what it's like when we get home from work and we're so insanely tired, particularly on a Wednesday. Uh, or maybe you're hungover on a Sunday and that's the worst time for a food prep and you, you can't fathom making decisions for the week. All you want to do is sit on your couch and fall into a scroll hole. Like we forget the power of tiredness, <laughs> mental, social, physical exhaustion in and maybe even that Sunday blues, how they may dictate our ability to action on tasks for the week ahead. It's really important to honor the power of that. Why? Why would it be important? Something I want to really drive home and I've driven it home in other podcast episodes, particularly episode number two, where I talk about the health behavior model, self-efficacy. Over time, if we continue to get confused by this uh, warm state, cold state, situation and we see a lack of consistency in our habits we can't stick to something that we said we would stick to this starts to chip away at our self-efficacy and that can have really grave implications on our ability to engage with a health behavior or a health outcome and like i said in previous episodes this isn't just me sort of anecdotally giving you this information oh, this is what i've seen in my clients it obviously is but it's also what we see in the research. Self-efficacy is a huge contributor to whether we will or will not engage in a health behavior. And just to have a little recap, self-efficacy is really essentially the belief in yourself to be able to engage in a task or complete a goal or complete an outcome. 
completed behavior. So if we have low self-efficacy, it's because we have potentially over time lost, lost self-trust. If we have high self-efficacy, we see something, we say we're gonna do it, we know that we're gonna action on that task. Chipping away at your self-efficacy by overestimating your ability or underestimating this important empathy gap is really detrimental to your motivation and long-term capacity for engaging with health, any health behavior, be it quitting smoking, be it or quitting vaping, no one smokes anymore, feels like more people vape, quitting, you know, certain activities around food or exercise or whatever it may be. So super, super important. We're at the last one, guys. Thanks for making it all this way. The fundamental attribution error. Maybe you've heard of this one before, but this is the tendency to place an undue emphasis on internal characteristics to explain someone else's behavior in a given situation rather than considering some of the external factors. For example, attributing someone's failure to their laziness rather than maybe external circumstances. And, you know, this happens a lot in fat phobia, but it sort of also happens in the reverse. Often we'll attribute someone's success in a certain area to some superior ability rather than looking at some of the circumstances, the external circumstances that supported their success. A classic case is when trainers say, and hey, I know I'm no exception here. I really had to work through this bias for myself or work through this lack of empathy that I had for my clients and for you know other people in the fitness community. When, when trainers or coaches talk about how easy it is, look, I did it. Or, you know, if I can work out in the gym as a woman, then you can too. And it completely disregards the difference between me working out in the gym versus someone who has didn't grow up a gymnast, didn't grow up going in and out of gyms all day, every day. The journey is not the same. And therefore, the ease of that journey and the outcome, the ease of that outcome is not the same. And so we can't discredit the variance in difficulties for different people. This is important. Not because I'm trying to encourage victim mentality. I'm not trying to say that, oh, well, you know, just because it was easy for me and it's difficult for you, that means that you probably shouldn't try. Obviously, that's not what I'm saying. However, it's important to give yourself the compassion and use this as a reminder to not necessarily, and it's hard, but to not necessarily compare your journey to someone else's. This is why we almost have to get a little bit blinkered in our approach and start to track our own progress because once again that self-efficacy will start to get chipped away at but you will feel sad down you'll feel like you're underachieving the fundamental attribution error is another reason I really encourage people to focus on trackable variables right in my programs I encourage you to do that especially the sculpt and stretch programs which give you very 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 specific ways to test and retest so that you can see that progression and this is not to get you obsessed with progression and always progressing but it's just to help you understand that you are progressing and that that's more important than where you sit amongst someone else now there is nothing wrong with some healthy competition i love competition I'm an ex-gymnast. I used to thrive on competition. I think there's an element of it that can be really healthy if we don't let it get too personal or don't let it bleed into other areas that are outside of the context of the sport or the ability or the performance. 
But when we're working with health, it's a different matter because our mental health comes into play here. So you do have to be conscious of the fact that if you're comparing yourself to other people, or if there's some level of competitiveness, that that may start to chip away at your mental health and eventually your ability to actually get through it. So keep a track of your progress for yourself, for your own self-motivation, self-efficacy boosting motivation. Today, we covered five cognitive biases that are getting in the way of your health outcomes. To recap, they included anchoring bias, the halo effect, the action bias, the empathy gap, and the fundamental attribution error. You can read research on every single one of these, and they're very fun, I think, to read. Maybe fun is a bit of an exaggeration. Depends on how exciting the rest of your day was. It's all relative. Which one did you relate to the most? Let me know in the Q&A and make sure you're following virtue underscore podcast on Instagram where I'm going to share a little bit more on these biases and some great resources if you want to read more. If you haven't yet and you did find this podcast helpful, share it with a friend, a colleague, a lover, maybe even an ex. And don't forget to hit the five star rating. <laughs> I do feel like an Uber driver when I say that, but it makes a huge difference. It gets the podcast into more ear holes, gets the podcast out there. It supports the, the page. And essentially helps to spread this message and spread the message of unraveling, unpacking our cognitive biases. Thank you so much for listening today. Can't wait to be in your ear holes next week. (laughs)